0: Welcome to this first of several podcasts dealing with the emergence of Christianity in the Roman Empire. My name is Phil Harlan, and I'm a professor here at York University in Toronto. I also run a website known as Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean, which you can find at philipharlan.com. My approach to studying religions in the ancient Mediterranean world, including early Christianity, is an historical one, not a theological one. I think you will find that these podcasts will be of interest to you regardless of your religious background. The first few podcasts will be dealing with Paul. Paul represents our earliest evidence for Christianity. Most of his letters, he wrote real letters to Christian communities, to followers of Jesus in a variety of cities in the Mediterranean, groups that he himself founded. And these letters that he wrote represent our earliest evidence for Christianity altogether. And so, in these first few podcasts, we'll be looking at Paul and his letters and trying to get a sense of both who this figure Paul is and what was going on within Christian communities at this earliest point in the history of Christianity. In this first podcast today, we'll be talking about some of the preliminary information we need to know before we start analyzing Paul's letters themselves, namely, who is this figure Paul? Do we know anything about his biography? It happens to be that Paul reveals in his letters, incidentally, when he's writing to communities, he happens to talk about himself and happens to reveal important things about his own identity. We need to know these things before we approach trying to get at what the early Christian communities were like through Paul's letters. And so today's podcast looks first at the question of what sources we have for studying a figure like Paul in the first century. It then turns to three key passages in Paul's own letters in which he happens to incidentally talk about himself and reveal important things about his identity. First, we'll deal with a passage in his letter to the Christians at Philippi. Then we'll move on to what is known as Second Corinthians is one of his letters to the Christians at Corinth. Then finally, we'll turn to Galatians, which is perhaps the most important passage regarding Paul's autobiography, his happenstance autobiography, where he refers to himself and talks about who he is in the context of addressing people in a letter. The Galatians passage is also very important for historians of early Christianity because it's one of the very few places where Paul refers to years and spans of years between different events, which allow us to get a rough chronology of when things are happening in early Christianity. So I hope you enjoy this podcast, and I hope you come again. The reason we begin with Paul is because the letters of Paul are our earliest evidence for Christianity at all. We know nothing about Christianity in terms of material that's dated before Paul. We know nothing about it. Paul is the first blip on the screen for Christianity in terms of a historian's viewpoint. Paul is our best evidence for understanding Pauline Christianity. As you're already beginning to realize, Christianity is a diverse phenomenon. There's a lot of things going on there, and we can't assume that what Paul thinks is what everyone else thinks. But he's our first glimpse of anything to do with Christianity, and we get a glimpse of what he thinks. And in the process, sometimes when we get in the letters, you'll see we get a glimpse of what some other Christians are doing, some other followers of Jesus are doing, through Paul, and through the people Paul is attacking rhetorically, or people he's correcting. So let's get into looking at Paul a bit more now. In terms of sources we have about this figure, Paul, we always have to give priority to Paul's own letters. This primary focus on Paul's letters as sources for Paul's life also entails the secondary role of Acts. Even more than that, we've got to figure out, sure, Acts is secondary, but even so, how can we use it for information about Paul? So those are our two main sources, Paul's own letters, and then a historiography, a history writing from the first century that provide us with information about Paul. In fact, for Acts, that history we're talking about, Paul is one of the main protagonists in the whole story. The whole story of Acts, first half of it is about Peter and others, yes, but Peter's the main protagonist. In the second half of Acts, Paul is the main protagonist. And so there's a lot of Paul in Acts, but we've got to be careful about how to use it. Let me talk a little bit about Paul in terms of biographical information that we have about him. And again, we have to focus on Paul's own letters on this. Once in a while, Paul in his own letters goes off on a tangent about himself. So we're lucky as historians that he does that sometimes. He could have not done that at all. But once in a while, he starts sharing biographical information. It's not because he wants to share biographical information for its own sake, but usually because he has a point to make in a letter, and it helps him to make his point to refer to things about himself. So it's incidentally that we get any biographical information about Paul. No one wrote a biography of Paul, and let alone Paul writing an autobiography. Some of the key passages are these. Let's take a look first of all at Philippians chapter 3. So Paul writes a letter to Philippi, to Christians, he had founded a community there, and then he leaves, and then he writes this letter, and in the context of writing to them later on, he happens to reveal things about his background. So Paul here is talking about other followers of Jesus who he disagrees with, so he's attacking opponents, and we'll get into this whole issue of attacking opponents as we get further into the letters. So I'm in chapter 3 of Philippians, and I am uh, you, you know, in the first few verses, but especially from verse 2 and on. He's saying, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. He's referring to people who circumcise Gentiles. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, etc. He's going on, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. So here comes the bragging, the sarcastic bragging. So he's attacking people who are saying you need to be circumcised in order to belong to God's people. Circumcising Gentiles, not Judeans. Gentiles who are joining a Judean movement. Others are saying you need to be circumcised because that's the standard in Judaism. Paul objects to that and here he's saying, if anyone has credentials, it'll be me. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. He's a Jew, a member of the people of Israel. He was circumcised. He's of the tribe of Benjamin within the Israelites. He was a Pharisee. So he's placing himself within one of those sects you read about, one of those intellectual, upper-class, educated, literate sects. He's here referring to something else that we'll find out about Paul too. And that is that he began as a persecutor of the Jesus movement. So at first, Paul felt that this Jesus movement was illegitimate and should be stopped. He then obviously became an advocate of it. So that's an important piece of information about Paul. He also refers to here, as a Pharisee, he followed the law to the T, basically. He's very familiar with the law, knows how to follow it. So there's one of those autobiographical little snippets that give us information about Paul that otherwise we would not know at all. The fact that he is a Pharisee means that he would be trained in Pharisaic modes of interpretation. And we'll see these all the time when we're reading through Paul's letters. So that's one of the passages. Let's look at another one. 2 Corinthians 11. And once again, it's in the context of rhetorically attacking opponents or defending himself against the attack of opponents, whatever it may be dealing with the fact that some of the Christians at Corinth object to Paul because when he writes letters, he sounds all great and mighty and rhetorically uh, sophisticated and all that, but when he's with them, he's a wimp. So they think he's a wimp, rhetorically. It's no longer this eloquent, sort of forceful, authoritative sound that you get from the letters. So this is how some of the Corinthians thought about Paul. They were probably, the Corinthians that thought like this, it wasn't the whole group of followers of Jesus at Corinth. It was... Probably upper-class, well-trained people who are no rhetoric, who are thinking of Paul as a bit of a wimp when it came to speaking publicly, in person, not when it came to writing letters. So once again, he's defending himself against different opponents, but for different reasons than what we saw at Philippi. And once again, he uses his credentials. Once again, he happens to refer to biographical information in the context of defending himself against this accusation of being a wimp. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 16 and following especially. Because he's thinking of the opponents again as bragging about how wonderful they are and how wimpy he is. He now is going to sarcastically start bragging. But whatever anyone dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I am talking like a madman. I am a better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless floggings, and often near death. Five times I've received from the Judeans the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from the false brethren. Get the idea? Deliberately. He's sarcastically talking about all the things that have happened to him and that he's better than them. But part of what he reveals is once again confirming he's among the Israelites, that he's a Hebrew, that he's Jewish, that he obviously has faced some physical problems in traveling around, that sometimes he's end up being punished in synagogues for behavior that was considered unacceptable among other Judeans in a particular place. Here again, though, the point for us is that it's giving us glimpses into things about Paul himself that we wouldn't otherwise know. Finally, in Galatians 1, let's look briefly at that. The main Jesus movement is in Jerusalem. And how Paul relates to Jerusalem is a very important question, including that council meeting in Jerusalem. But for today, let's look at some of the biographical information in the first chapter of his letter to the Christians at Galatia. Once again, Paul is dealing with people objecting to what he does. And people having a different type of Christianity than him. Other followers of Jesus that have a different angle on things. At Galatia, Paul had founded a community, left, and once he left, other followers of Jesus came through from elsewhere. Probably Judeans, who followed Jesus as a Messiah, came through and discovered these Gentiles worshipping the Jewish God. And that these Gentiles, thankfully, in their view, had had adopted the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. Because Paul had taught that there, right? Someone else came through later. But they said, what on earth is going on here? Why are you not circumcised? You cannot belong to the people of God without being circumcised. And so some of these people who have come later are advocating that the Gentiles, the Greeks and Romans who have joined the Judean movement, of course have to be circumcised. Wait a minute here. Paul must have forgot some major thing here. We'll teach you the right thing. You need to be circumcised. And then Paul is writing to address this situation because Paul believes Gentiles should not be circumcised. Paul has no objection to circumcision, generally speaking. However, he has objection to certain aspects of the law, we'll get into this later, being applied to non-Jews, being applied to Gentiles. And the main one he's always upset about is circumcision. Remember the whole idea of the four common denominators? Where there was the covenant with God, and the covenant involved the people who God chose living up to the part of the covenant by following the Torah. In the Torah, it explains that the main symbol of showing that you're part of that covenant is to be circumcised, just to give you the perspective on it. So these other Judeans are saying they need to be circumcised, Gentiles do, to belong to the Jesus movement. So once again, every one of the cases where we get biographical information about Paul, it's either on the defensive or on the attack on issues of opponents. Incidentally, he gives us information about himself. And so he talks about his good message, and he contrasts it sarcastically to the supposed good message of these opponents, who are advocating circumcision. He calls it another gospel. I'm in verse 6 of chapter 1. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different good message. Not that there is another good message, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ, good message of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a good message contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. So he's cursing the people who are doing it. Now he's going to go on to some of his biographical information. Seems that the opponents here in Galatia, who have another gospel, think of Paul as illegitimate. Paul is not a legitimate leader of the Jesus movement. Other members of the Jesus movement think that. Paul is not legitimate. And that's what he's contending with. And so here he goes on to defend his good message as the right one over against some other Jesus followers who have a different view of things. Right? We're not talking about Paul as the norm and them as the deviants. We're just talking about two different groups of early Jesus followers with different views on things. This is his defense. So we have very defensive rhetoric going on here. And I'll explain that within the context of Greco-Roman rhetoric soon enough. But look at verse 11 of Galatians chapter 1, where Paul begins to defend his good message as the legitimate one. The way he does it is, he says, it came straight from God. Not a single human had anything to do with it. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it. No one taught me. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul believes that Jesus, after Jesus was executed, that Jesus appeared to Paul. Paul believes this. And told Paul something. All of Paul's letters are about it. Go to the Gentiles. He believes Jesus appeared to him and said, go to the Gentiles. Bring this movement to the Gentiles. The Greeks and Romans, the non-Judeans. Bring this Judean movement to the non-Judeans is the essence of that revelation he's talking about here. But his emphasis here, though, is it's straight from Jesus and straight from God and no human ever had anything to do with it. So it must be right. My good message, Paul is saying, must be right because of that. And obviously not the good message of these other opponents. Let me go on a little bit here because uh, this is another place where we're getting into some more biographical information and simultaneously into the question of chronology, into the question of when Paul did what. It's one of the few passages where we have this sort of information. I'm in verse 13 of Galatians 1 here. You have heard no doubt of my earlier life in Judaism. So he's going to get into biographical things again. I was violently persecuting the assembly of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. He was a really good Judean in terms of following the Torah. Here's where he's going to now discuss what we as moderns sometimes call a conversion, but I would refrain from that word. He's now going to discuss the revelation he claims he had from Jesus. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being. Back to the whole thing. I didn't talk to a single follower of Jesus. He's bragging about that. I didn't talk to a single person who knew Jesus. Appearance involved Jesus saying to him, proclaim Jesus among the Gentiles. So this is the heart of what Paul's all about, is this idea of going to the Gentiles with a good message about Jesus, and we've got to figure out what that message is. Persecutor of the church claims that God sent Jesus to him to appear to him. The message is, go proclaim Jesus to the Gentiles. Then he becomes an advocate. So this is very important biographical information about Paul, right, to know this, uh, before you start studying his letters to understand where he's coming from. Let's go on here, though, because there's more. He's giving more and more biographical information. Now he's going to be obsessed with Jerusalem. But right now, I want to draw your attention to some of the chronological issues that come up here that give us a way of actually timing things in Paul's life. But let's go into this some more. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went away at once into Arabia. Paul claims that he had this appearance of Jesus to him, telling him to proclaim to the Gentiles. Then Paul went away into Arabia. doesn't explain anything about what he did there. It's too bad he doesn't go on about what he did there. It would be nice to know. And afterwards, I returned to Damascus. So he came back to Syria. The way he's talking is, he was in Syria when he had that revelation from Jesus. He went away to Arabia and then came back to Syria, to Damascus. He's emphasizing he's nowhere near Jerusalem, which is where the Jesus movement is. And where he used to persecute followers of the Jesus movement. Here's where it's interesting. You get years given to you. So after three years, he's saying that there's. he's gone to Arabia, has gone back to Damascus, still has not talked to any members of the Jesus movement in Jerusalem, which is where the Jesus movement is centered. And he gives us this number, three years. So on one of these handouts here, I give you the, how the chronology works. So you have the execution of Jesus somewhere in this range, 30 and Paul's persecution of the Jesus movement. You then have, estimate, say it's 33, that Paul has the appearance of Jesus to him, as he claims. You then have a three-year period we're here having referred to. Whatever you add to it, it gives you at least a rough idea of when things are happening, time-wise. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem, finally. Three years, that's a long time. Three years, that's how long it took for Paul to even go and talk to a single person in Jerusalem who is considered leadership of the Jesus movement. So now he does go up, but look at what he talks about. I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Kephas. Kephas is just the Aramaic way of saying Peter. Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, right? And to visit Peter and stayed with him 15 days. So he hasn't gone at all for three years, and then he has a 15-day meeting. But then look at what he says. But I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So in the, this next period here, and we're talking from 36 to 50 approximately, that he's saying he went to Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown by sight to the assemblies of Judea that are in Christ. He still is unknown totally by everyone in Jerusalem, except for he's met Peter for 15 days. And there was a brief meeting with James at some point during those 15 days. They only heard it said, the one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy. That's all they know about Paul. Now we have more chronology. Then after 14 years, now the question is, is this 14 years after the three years or including the three years, but Take your pick. If it includes it, it's 17 years later. So in the 50s, we're getting into the 50s CE now, right? Chronologically. This is the only thing that allows us to chronologically pinpoint anything about early Christianity, by the way, is this these little uh, references Paul makes. So then after 14 years, so we're around 50 CE now. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Second Jerusalem visit in a total of 17 years. Paul went to Jerusalem twice in 17 years, according to what Paul Paul's saying here. I went up in response to a revelation. No one told me to do it. Once again, it's a revelation from God that he should do it. Then I laid before them the good message that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain, etc. At least you have a bit of the chronology now and a sense of this strange relationship between Paul and the main source of the Jesus movement in Jerusalem. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity.